Uh, you could probably guess what's been on my mind all week. I've had a million things that I've needed to do this week, but there's one thing that's been dominating my mind, and it's this. It's the open road. I'm very, very lucky because this week I get to do a thing that I love doing more than most other things. I get to go on a long-distance journey. A five-day road trip from here to southern Ontario that will see me drive across four provinces and one state there, and then three provinces and four states on the way back. I've driven these routes before, but that's exciting to me. I know what to expect, and there's things that I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to visiting some of my favorite sites, the towering stone of the Canadian Shield, the vast, endless expanse of Lake Superior. I always find it inspiring to visit the Terry Fox Monument near Thunder Bay. Um, make sure I stop there every time. I'll be driving over the, the Mackinac Bridge, which is this this huge, long, it's like a four-mile-long bridge over Lake Huron that or connects um, Lake Huron to Lake Michigan. Um, it also connects the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan, and it's just this really beautiful bridge. Um, I'll get to see the prairie sunset over Saskatchewan, maybe Manitoba. The waterfalls of Munising, Michigan, it's this little dinky town with all these beautiful waterfalls right on Lake Superior. Um, and of course, the most beautiful and awe-inspiring sight of them all, the giant goose in Wawa, Ontario. What a stupid thing. <laughs> but I can't wait to visit. I can't wait to visit all of these again. And, and despite the relative familiarity, other parts of the trip will still be new and adventurous. It's still going to be an adventure. There's new restaurants to try along the way. Uh, last year, or not last year, two years ago, last time I drove, I had a goal of having a non-name brand bacon cheeseburger once a day. It was not good for my digestive system, but it was it was a good goal to set for myself. Um, so there's new food to try. There's a few extra stops that I'm going to make, especially in in the Canadian Shield. There's all there's a beautiful lake every five miles, and so um, try some of those out. There's new podcasts and new music to keep me engrossed and engaged, and that's one of my fa- that's my favorite part about the trip is I just it's like 35 hours of just me listening to my music. And here's the biggest adventure: no hotels this time. One hotel on the way back, but I'm doing the whole thing Airbnb. Is anybody familiar with Airbnb? Yeah, I've never done it before. That's Airbnb is it's like Uber for for sleeping, where you rent out somebody a room in somebody's house so i'll be sleeping in somebody's house there's often that person also in their own house and so that sounds like an adventure um i'm excited to see how it goes every time i undergo this journey something new and fresh happens um i love it and i feel very fortunate that i get to go not to mention the fact that i get to see a bunch of people who i love very very much when i get to where i'm going so i'm excited But when you go on a journey like the one that I'm about to undertake, you become very intimately connected with your means of transportation. Your car becomes an extension of you. You're very familiar with everything about it. Um, Speaking of which, there's this, you know, okay, there's this weird recurring thought that I have sometimes. It happens lots of times when I'm driving past like a herd of cows that are up against the fence looking at me when I'm driving. And I think, what do animals think of cars? Do they understand what's going on there? Like, do animals think that the car is its own creature and that the human has been consumed alive by this thing? And how do they wrap their head around the fact that the human is not moving at all but is going 100 kilometers down? Like, do they understand this? Um, do I understand this? Animals must think cars are very strange. 
in a car, and this is the impression I get when I see like a magpie on the side of the road and he's looking at you like this when you drive by. Um, they must think that they are uni- this human is united with, but but separate from this entity that's whipping past them that propels them forward. And that's just another bizarre thought that you wish I had never shared with you, but I, I think it all the time. What do animals think in this situation? Um. Anyway, so let me tie this all together and connect it to our friend, the Apostle Paul. Road trips, being united with your car. Ever since Acts 19.21, Paul has been resolutely determined to get to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. So the last third of like last nine chapters of the book of Acts are Paul on a road trip um, from sort of Greece and Asia Minor. Now he's heading to Jerusalem, which is a big deal. And then he's going to eventually try and get himself to Rome. And it takes up a huge portion of, of the book. And so Paul, like me, is heading off on this epic journey. Except whereas my setbacks would include like a possible flat tire or a lack of Vietnamese restaurants when I want one or like an Airbnb where the toilet doesn't work those are my setbacks. Paul's setbacks are much more consequential, much more substantial. Things like suffering, imprisonment, and the looming specter of a martyr's death. So I don't think I'll face any of those things, but Paul absolutely knows that he's facing those things. And like me, seeing the familiar sights on the side of the road, our passage today features some familiar characters who come into view and then disappear over the horizon again, left in the wake of Paul's determination. We're going to meet some people who we've met before. Kind of like on my trip, I'll get to see some things that I've seen before. And it's this determination that stands out as the real lesson of the day. Man, that, that stupid goose was up there for a long time. Sorry about that. So anyway, it's Paul's determination that stands out as the lesson of the day. Why is Paul so determined to reach Jerusalem and Rome, even though everyone around him, as we'll see today, everyone around him urges him not to? And even though he knows what pain awaits him, why is Paul so willing to experience so much suffering. We've looked at that question a few times as we've studied Stephen and Paul. It comes up over and over again in Acts. And so it does us good to, to, to explore it some more. Why is Paul so willing to experience so much suffering? Examining that question is the journey that we will undertake together with this sermon. So buckle up, get your comfy driving shoes on, and grip the wheel with both hands as we join Paul on an adventure of faithfulness through the beginning of Acts 21. And we'll start with the first three verses. So Acts 21, verses 1 to 3. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing it to the south, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyra, where our ship was to unload its cargo. And we'll stop there whole lot of nautical details that, I mean, even our old friend, the Big Map Omissions, can't help us a whole lot with that. Um, Cause, nowhere to be found on here. But we do know that this journey begins with the ending of a previous journey. Paul's missions work in the Roman province of Asia, specifically Ephesus, uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. So Paul had been in this area for three years. Before that, he was in this area, and he was tremendously successful. But that journey is over, and his new journey to get to Jerusalem and then eventually on to Rome is just beginning. It was there, here actually in Miletus, just not far from Ephesus, it was there that Paul and his friends had to be torn away to quote verse 1. 
This is the first familiar sight on our journey through Acts 21. Who is he being torn away from? Well, some of you weren't here last week, so if you want, you can just skip back and read the end of chapter 20, Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders and leaders. But that's who he's being torn away from. It's a final visit with these elders in Ephesus, and it was an intensely emotional time. Uh, The passage is very emotional. As Paul tells them his plans for the immediate future, he says this. This is from chapter 20. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. This is his news for these these men that he's been serving alongside and suffering alongside for three years. I'm going to Jerusalem and I know I'm going to suffer. It may even cost me my life, but I'm ready for that. He then caps off the visit by making it clear to them that they would never see him again. That he knows he's going and they are never going to be in his presence again. And that's the key that really turns on the waterworks for everyone. They all kneel down and kiss him and it's just the super emotional time of goodbye that we talked about last week. So that's how this new journey towards Jerusalem began, um, with, with weeping, with, with knowing that you're heading into persecution and suffering. But it was hardly the last mention of coming persecution, nor the last instance of shed tears before Paul finally reaches his destination. Let's read verses 4 to 7. Finding the disciples there in Tyra, We stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. We'll pause there, too. The ship that Paul and his friends have boarded makes landfall in Tyra and begins unloading and loading its cargo, and that's a process that would take a week. So Paul had some time on his hands. And because he had boarded a fast ship, a big ship that would cut through the middle of the Mediterranean instead of bobbing around the coast, he had extra time. Remember, his goal is to get to Jerusalem, not just at any time, whenever it's convenient. He wants to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. So he's he's on a schedule. Because they took this ship, they have some extra time. So he uses that week to meet with the church in Tyra. On journeys like this, people show up, they have an impact, and then you say goodbye, and that's exactly what happens here. The Ephesian church leaders had been Paul's companions and co-servants for three years. Three eventful and challenging years, filled with lots of success, but also lots of suffering. These believers in the church of Tyra, however, Paul's never met them before, and he only spent a week with them, never mind three years. He's only with them a week. But look at the response he gets. Because of the unshakable bond that occurs when strangers are united in Jesus Christ, it only took a week for the friendship between Paul and the Tyrians to become absolutely ironclad. It's as if they'd been neighbors for a decade, and he's just met these people a week earlier. Yet when it's time for Paul and his companions to go, they all meet on the beach. Even their their wives and children come. They all kneel down on the sand, which was very atypical in that culture. You never kneeled to pray. You stood to pray. You kneeled to, to show urgency, um, to show desperation. And so they all kneel with Paul, just like the Ephesian elders had. It's just as emotional, even though they've only known him for a week. 
What's interesting about this is that the church in Tyre began with the scattering of the church following Paul's, actually Saul's, initial persecution of the church way back in Acts chapter 8. Remember, Paul was not always a hero. At one time, he hated the church. He hated Jesus and sought to crush Jesus. And in that initial wave of persecution, people scattered all over the place. And lots of them scattered to this part of the world, to Tyre. And so Paul had been the cause of their fleeing, the cause of their suffering. But now, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within both Paul and the Tyrians, his new friends, the Holy Spirit draws them together as family. So, whereas Paul had once elicited tears of sadness and pain when he arrived, to crush these Christians, now he elicits tears of sadness and pain when he bids farewell to his new and deeply beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. To me, that it's just a beautiful, strange, and interesting journey that, that he goes on where, where God turns enemies into friends. I think that's really beautiful. Only a week with Paul, and they're, they're grieving so deeply that he's leaving. Such was the intensity of the goodbyes that entire households came to the shoreline to see their new friends off. Reminds me of a week at camp, honestly, where you're, you're only there for a week, but you build such strong um, emotional bonds that the last day of camp sucks. It's hard to say goodbye. Even the kids that kind of drive you nuts, like, oh, I'm never going to see you again, maybe. Um, and that's what happens here. I just think it's a really beautiful portrait of community, of, of the journey having its ups and downs. This is a tremendous up. It's there for a week, makes great friends. But journeys come to an end, and this particular leg of the journey comes to an end because Paul is still resolutely determined to get to Jerusalem. And this, despite the ever-increasing force of his friend's attempts to turn him away from the persecution that awaits him, as we'll see in the next passage. So after sailing to Ptolemais and staying for a day to meet with the Christians there, Paul and his companions are finally traveling by land. They're off the boat, they're on land now, and they're on their way now to Jerusalem with a stopover in Caesarea. So let's find out what happens in verses 8 to 16. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Here we encounter some more familiar sights on this great road trip journey of Paul's. Two men, who we've met previously in the book of Acts, reappear in the city of Caesarea, and their familiar presence is as powerful and as meaningful as the familiar stone of the Canadian shield or the relentless waves of the Great Lakes will be to my journey. They show up, and it's good to see them. Um, But they have hard things to say, at least one of them. The first familiar person in this passage is Philip the Evangelist. Remember Philip the Evangelist? He's probably the third or fourth most important person in the book of Acts, not including Jesus or the Holy Spirit. There's obviously there's Paul, there's Peter, and then right behind them is either Stephen or Philip, the super important guys. 
We first met Philip way back in chapter 6. There was a complaint in Jerusalem. The Greek-speaking widows weren't getting enough support. And so the, the 12 disciples appoint seven men to be in charge of the distribution of funds to these widows. And Philip is the second person named. The first named is Stephen. He's a big deal. Second is Philip. But it's in chapter 8 of Acts that Philip really gets the spotlight. Um, in chapter 1, Jesus speaks his last words to the disciples. He commands his followers to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, in chapter 8, it's Philip who fulfills those last two, Samaria and the ends of the earth. He's the one who first takes the gospel to Samaria, hugely successful. Then he, he's wandering down a road somewhere and he, he, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that guy? And the Ethiopian eunuch's reading scripture. Philip explains it to him. He says it's about Jesus, baptizes the guy, and then gets teleported or something. The scripture says he gets whisked away to some other location. And that Ethiopian eunuch took the message back to Ethiopia. So that's the ends of the earth. So it's Philip who fulfills two of the four hardest locations in in Jesus' command to to spread the good news. So Philip's a big deal, is all I'm saying. Um, So after he gets teleported, or whatever, by the Holy Spirit, it says in chapter 8 that he ends up in Caesarea. And that's where we find him again 20 years later. Except Things have changed for Philip on his journey, just like things have changed for Paul on his journey. In Philip's journey, it's been 20 years since his actions were last noted. And for us, by the way, we studied Philip in August 2017. So almost a year ago. That's how long we've been doing Acts. But um, in the 20 years since we, we, we last heard from Philip in the book of Acts, he's apparently started a family, and that family is chock full of excellence. Philip's four young daughters, and by the way, the Greek word in verse 9 is literally literally virgins, which is a word used for young women, so they were probably 14 or younger. Um, but they were all powerfully connected to the Holy Spirit through the gift of prophecy. Prophecy, huge deal in the church. In, place, in other places of Paul's writing, the apostle to be an apostle was the highest status you could have in the church. To be a prophet, right underneath that. Prophets and pastors. They were a huge deal. And these, these four young women are prophets. Church tradition holds that a couple of years after this meeting with Paul, Philip and his daughters moved to Ephesus, where they became tremendously well-respected and well-renowned. At least two of the daughters remained unmarried all their lives, dedicated instead to delivering powerful messages of truth and redemption and the story of Jesus and the story of Paul and the early church to the people there. They were like the go-to historians for their day. Most people believe that Luke gained much of his knowledge of the events that he's not present for from these four daughters because they were such authorities on the history of the church. So why do I, why do I highlight all this? Because, again, this cannot be stated enough times to compensate for the, the, the nearly irreparable damage that chauvinistic, misogynistic men have done to the actual words of Scripture over the millennia. So let me highlight for you again the elevated role that women held in the church, especially in contrast to the patriarchy all around them. Everywhere else in Rome, everywhere else in Judaism, women had no status whatsoever. But in the church, these four preteen women have the, the, the office of prophet, which is one of the highest offices you can have. And it's not like they chose that for themselves. The Holy Spirit did that for them. So clearly the Holy Spirit values the voices of women. And so maybe the church should do a good job of valuing the voices of women as well. These four daughters of Philip, though unnamed, 
rank alongside Priscilla, Lydia, and Phoebe as heroes and leaders in the church. And that's just names we have from the book of Acts. There were others who are worthy of our recognition and our emulation. They're examples to follow. In other words, despite what the world around us declares, and despite what unimaginative church leaders even today might spew out the name of Jesus, women have a voice and a prominent authority in the history of the church. There, in the church, more so than anywhere else. In the church, they had a voice. They were people who deserved to be heard and listened to. Just two different things. The Holy Spirit gave them that lofty position, and it would do the church good, I think, to, to listen as well. So that's a total aside. I just, anytime I can undermine the, the misogyny that, that has occurred in the, the church for the last 2,000 years, I will take that opportunity. Because when you read Acts, women aren't under anyone's feet. Women are powerful leaders, just like any of the men. I just think that's cool. Especially as, as a father with two young girls. Like, I want to be the Philip who has daughters who do powerful, tremendous acts of service in the church. And you don't need to be up front to be a tremendous servant, obviously. In the church, in fact, it's the servants who are the most valuable. But that doesn't mean that women can't have a voice. And so that's, I think that's important to highlight. So Philip, he's the first familiar person that we, we re-meet in this passage. The other familiar figure alongside Philip is far less recognizable than the evangelist. In fact, when I read today's passage and read this name, I forgot that we'd ever met him before. And I did a whole sermon about this guy. Um, Agabus first entered the scene in Acts 11, coming down from Jerusalem with a group of fellow prophets to pronounce a coming famine that would hit Jerusalem during the time of Emperor Claudius. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. So Agabus, he, like the four daughters of Philip, is this big, important, Holy Spirit-connected speaker of truth and prophecy. So, because he was so well-respected and because his predictions had come through, come, excuse me, come true then, then you better believe that, that the company's fear and concern was elevated when the same Agabus comes down and binds Paul up with his belt and says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. Agabus' words mean something. And so when Agabus says you will be tied up and punished, you can see how Paul's companions would respond the way they respond, where they start pleading with him, please don't go. In fact, after hearing Agabus' prophecy, even Luke, our author, even Luke, who had been traveling with Paul for years and who should know better, even Luke joins in with the weeping and pleading for his friend to change his mind. He, he includes himself. He's not shy about that. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke indicates that he doesn't understand either what's going on. He's not shy to say it. And, and Luke had seen Paul go through this exact same thing before. Luke was there in Philippi when Paul was rushed, beaten, thrown in prison, get ready to be executed, and then miraculously delivered. Luke saw all of that. He saw the pain that his friend went through in the name of Jesus. He was there when Paul had endured this before. He knew Paul's faith. He knew Paul's determination. He knew how Jesus had miraculously delivered Paul from prison and, and from persecution after persecution. He had heard Paul tell the Ephesian leaders his plan. He had heard Paul say over and over again that he knew he was going to suffer greatly in Jerusalem. Luke knew the entire situation, and still he writes in verse 12 that we pleaded with Paul not to go after hearing Agabus's prediction. So it's one thing for Paul to predict he's going to suffer. 
It's another thing entirely for a third-party super prophet to say, you are going to suffer. And that was too much for Luke to bear. And, and Paul's other friends. And so they plead with him, please don't go, Paul. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. It's not a big deal. Why don't we do something else? Why don't we go to Damascus? Damascus is lovely this time of year. Why don't we go there instead of you getting beaten up and thrown in jail and possibly murdered in Jerusalem? And Paul, Paul's no robotic uber-soldier programmed to obey without emotion. All, from hearing friend after friend after friend in city after city after city plead with him, please don't go, that gets to him. That, it would get to any of us. He hears their pleas and it gets to him. His, his response, however, perfectly captures his solemn dedication to the task appointed to him. In verse 13, Paul responds, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's so determined that that even the threat of death cannot persuade him to not go. He is the epitome of Jesus' teaching in Luke 9, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Uh, It's a super important verse for believers to, to drill into their brain. That if you live your life just for yourself, you're actually forfeiting your life because you're missing what's really important. But if you sacrifice your life for the king and for the kingdom, that's where you find real, true life. So if you want to be a disciple, you take up your cross, which means you suffer for his name's sake. Suffering is a crucially important aspect of becoming a believer, um, becoming a true disciple. You deny yourself. And you sacrifice what you need to sacrifice. You give up what you need to give up to be the best follower of Jesus you can be. And that's what Paul is doing here. In order to be a real disciple, to obey the Holy Spirit, I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer this binding and this persecution. All throughout this chapter, people try to convince Paul to turn from Jerusalem. In verse 4, the Tyrian church even pleaded with Paul in the Spirit, it says. In the Spirit. And that's very interesting. Because that means they had the Holy Spirit revealing Paul's fate to them. And similar to the Caesarean believers hearing it from Agabus, they knew from the Spirit what was going to happen to Paul. So does that indicate that the Holy Spirit is conflicting himself? Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit's leading me to Jerusalem, I need to suffer. Everyone else around Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit's saying, you're going to Jerusalem, don't go. So does that mean that the Holy Spirit is is, is in conflict with himself? Is Paul so blinded by his fanatical devotion to get to Jerusalem that he's actually ignoring the Holy Spirit and opposing God's will for himself? Should he be listening to all these people if even in the Spirit they are hearing he needs to not go to Jerusalem? It's a good question, right? Well, no. I do not think the Holy Spirit is contradicting itself. I think what it means is that the Holy Spirit did in fact reveal to his friends that Paul is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer and be bound up and thrown in prison. The Holy Spirit made that clear to his friends, just like the Holy Spirit made it clear to Paul. It's what they did with that knowledge that differentiates Paul from his friends. Because his friends say, the Holy Spirit tells us you're going to be beaten up mercilessly, and they, they say, don't go. The Holy Spirit doesn't say, don't go. They say it, as any of you would when you hear your friend is marching towards certain imprisonment and, and persecution. They saw the Holy Spirit's plan and they feared it. 
It was always God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. It was also God's will for Paul to suffer, and that's the part they missed. Paul's friends knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem, and they were determined to redirect Paul away from that suffering. But Paul, he likewise knew what was going to happen, but he was determined to go through with it. He was determined to go through with it. But where did Paul's faithful determination come from? How was he able to hear in city after city after city throughout the Roman Empire, how was he able to hear everywhere he went what was lying in store for him, pain and bondage and imprisonment, and still go through with it? Where does that kind of faith come from? A faith ready to die willingly. Well, when I read about Paul's faithful determination, I felt kind of like a cow on the side of the road, watching Paul whip past me as this super faithful this apostle in, in super obedience, and I just don't understand it. What's going on here? I, in my life, I've never experienced this kind of level of, of necessary devotion where I march willingly towards my death. I likely will never experience that. And so I'm like this, this one of these, what's going on here? How has how this happened? I sit here chewing my cud, wondering with my limited mind what is happening. How can we march, how can anybody march towards certain pain like that? Well, cattle Christopher, it's because Paul is intimately connected with the one who propels him forward. Paul is intimately connected with the one who propels him forward. Paul doesn't have a kind of faith that we need to try to get for ourselves. This is what I mentioned during communion message. It's not something we strive for. We already have it. We've already been gifted with all the tools we need to accomplish exactly what Paul is accomplishing here. Our job is, as Jesus says in John 15, to remain in him, to abide in him, to rest in him. He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. It doesn't mean we can't walk around and, and breathe and function as a human. It means we can do nothing lasting, nothing eternal, nothing truly good without him. But if we remain in him, if we stay connected to him, we will bear much fruit. And one of the most delicious pieces of fruit that we can grow as we abide in him is the fruit of faithful devotion, the fruit of willingness to obey, the fruit of humility, the fruit of knowing that your life was bought at an extremely high cost, and so it should be surrendered at even the highest cost, that being death. It's the kind of faithfulness that accepts persecution and suffering and even death because you know that your life is in his hands regardless. That as Paul says, if you go and you suffer and you die, you get to go be with Jesus. Hooray, it's the the best. If you go and you suffer and are delivered from that, then you've just powerfully testified to, to what faith in Jesus can look like. You've made his will and his plan and his kingdom greater because of your willingness to to abandon your own life. And so remaining in Jesus is like a road trip. You are moving. You are going places. You are seeing amazing things, but you are not moving at all. You're sitting in a car. It's the car that's moving. Your vehicle does all the moving for you. And this road trip that is faith in Jesus is very much like that. It was the Holy Spirit that propelled Paul towards Jerusalem that fueled him with all the strength and determination he needed to accomplish his goal. Remember we talked about last week or the week before, before Paul got on that boat, he took a solo journey. He walked by himself through the mountains to get to the next city. And probably what he did during that time was prepare himself for exactly this. He used that time to get as connected to Jesus as he could. 
to get as familiar with the vehicle that drove him as he could. For whatever reason, Jesus needed Paul to endure the suffering that we're going to read about in a few weeks. Paul's job was merely to turn the ignition, hit the gas, and appreciate the sights around him. Some of these sights are familiar and beautiful. The return of, of Philip and Agabus, the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, the hope of glory despite suffering. Those are all beautiful things that he sees again and again on this journey. But some of the sights are new and exciting and worrisome. Things like friendships forged under the banner of Jesus, those are new and, and wonderful. Adventure on the high seas, who doesn't want that? Um, or powerful prophecies about your impending imprisonment and doom. Who doesn't want that? <laughs> but no matter where he goes or who he meets or how he serves, Paul is able to face all the planned and unplanned adventures by remaining connected to his power source. He can withstand all the towering hills and humbling valleys on the road trip that is life because he is driven by the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, in your life, you will have many journeys. You will see many familiar sights of beauty and pain. You will experience many new ups and downs. May you be ready and willing for all of it because your faith is fueled and propelled by the presence of God within you, alive within you. Remain in him and you will go places together. You may even see a 28-foot goose. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't know what's in store for us. We know that there is pain ahead and suffering because we're human. We also know that there's glory and blessings and beauty ahead because we are in you. So help us to remain in you like Paul remains in you. Um, he's fueled by the presence of you alive in him. And I pray the same for us, that wherever we go, whatever we experience, whether it's suffering and pain or whether it's, it's pleasure and, and excitement and joy, help us to, to know you and remain in you in all of those situations and be fueled by you to, to make your name glorious wherever we go, just as Paul did. We thank you for people who come into our life to to charge us, to refuel us. Um, we grieve when those people are gone. We thank you for reminders of how good, how much good there can be even in suffering, just like Paul experiences. But Father, in all things, I pray that we would remain in you, that we would abide in you and live in you. And no matter what we go through, we would be driven by you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you for this. We thank you for this beautiful road trip that is life. We praise you in the name of Jesus, Father. Amen. Yeah, Canada Day, yeah. Happy Canada Day. Here's a giant ugly goose. Okay. What do animals think in this situation?